0: You're listening to the Light for Living podcast, featuring the sermons of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Dorado, Arkansas, where Dr. Clark Whitney serves as senior pastor. Join us for verse-by-verse messages through the life-changing Word of God. Along the way, we'll also feature devotional thoughts, Bible studies, and interviews, all designed to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it out and turn to the book of Psalm chapter 139. Psalm chapter 139. And the question that we're considering today is this. Why can you trust God and His plan for your life? Why can you trust God and His plan for your life? Next week, we're going to be looking at Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Before we can even trust Him, we need to know why we can trust Him. And you need to know that there is a good God who has a good plan for your life. We're going to walk through this psalm today, and I want to give you five reasons why you can trust God and His plan for you. You say, I, I didn't know my life had a plan. You may feel you're advanced in years. You feel like it's too late. The trajectory of your life is already set. Or you might feel young, and, and, and you just think, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Uh, I'm just going to live for myself, and I don't really have a reason for living. The truth is that God has a plan for you and your life. If you have breath in your lungs, God has a plan for you. In Psalm chapter 139, David writes about who God is. 24 verses 6 Stanzas of four verses each, excuse me, four stanzas of six verses each get to the same result. 24 verses, 48 times, as we're about to see, the pronouns me and I are used. David talks a lot about me and I. But really beneath the surface, you see he's really telling you whose God is in relation to him. Psalm 139 speaks to our heads, but it also speaks directly to our hearts. It is one of the most beautiful passages, I believe, in all of Scripture. And so, uh, don't mistake it for a message about you and all about you. It's all about what God wants to do in you and through you. And here we go in Psalm 139. If you got it, say got it. The Word of God says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, O Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will hold me. Your right hand will hold on to me. And if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light all around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day, darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your your are, works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. Who invoke you deceitfully, your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive or wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, you're good to us. Thank you for the opportunity and the ability to open up your word. And God, I thank you that your word is alive and that it's active and your spirit is always at work. And God, would we yield to your spirit? Would you open up your word today so that we would see why we can trust you with your good plan for our life? God, I pray that if one is here that that is far from you today, God, they're confused in their thoughts and the attitude of their mind and they don't know which way to go and they feel hopeless. God, I pray today that you would give them hope and strength and reason for living. ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been on a quest ever since, uh, I guess I was an adult, to wherever I lived to find the very best catfish place. You may have grown up like me. We were not Catholic who eat fish on Fridays until they said you don't, but uh, we ate fish every Friday. Okay, we were Baptists, but we still ate fish every Friday. Anybody with me? Anybody do that? I know y'all go to houses. Some of y'all go on Thursday because it's a little bit less crowded. And I totally understand that. But that is a habit of my family that has been ingrained in me ever since I was a boy. Even to this day, if it's Friday night and we're not eating catfish, which we seldom do, I feel a little strange sometimes. When we moved to Georgia from Arkansas, it was an adventure in faith. And God blessed it, and we had so many wonderful memories there and wonderful friends and really family to us. But we moved to Georgia, and we figured out that all catfish in the South is not the same. Some of y'all have been to Georgia. And we found out there is a difference in their catfish and, and Arkansas catfish or East Texas catfish that I was raised on. And so we were there, and we wanted a little taste of home because Lord knows their barbecue show don't taste like our barbecue. They're great folks. They love the Lord. Their family to me, but I told them to their face i don 't like the barbecue. I, I was very blessed in our church. We had a rather large staff still do uh, twelve pastors and directors on the staff, so we would meet and we would bear each other 's burdens and and we always had each other 's back, whatever we went through and so we had a good sense of of friendship and teamwork and camaraderie and trust and there was a man serving on staff he had been there for a long time, his name was Jimmy. I'll call him out. His name is Jimmy Moneypenny. And he got saved, never went to seminary or formal education, but Jimmy is one of the most wisest and grounded in God's Word individual I've ever known. He's an organizational genius. Uh, He's led the church's recreation ministry with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids all throughout the year, baseball, t-ball, basketball, soccer, you name it. He's organized all that. So he's a very trustworthy person. Jimmy said, hey, Clark, you need to go try this catfish place. You'll really like it. And, and why, don't, why don't you take your wife? It's called Snellgroves Catfish. It's the best place in all of middle Georgia. I guarantee you're going to like it. It's my favorite. So Aaron and I, we, we, we went over there, and we went to Snellgroves. Well, we knew something was wrong when we found out there were cash only. Uh, in 2023, you should be able to take a card, but that's besides the point. So we got there and we ordered our all-you-can-eat catfish. We thought this is going to be so great because we got all-you-can-eat. Well, they gave us the plate and they brought it out. And these were little old limp catfish. They weren't golden. They were kind of brown. And they were a little bitty and they had bones in them. And so we didn't know what to do because we're used to the big fillets. And so we took it and we ate it and it just kind of tasted a little funny. Kind of like the catfish has been on the bottom of the pond for too long. You know what I mean? And so we had a horrible experience at Snellgroves. In fact, so much that I never went back. And from that day forward, instead of calling it Snellgroves, I call it Smellgroves. Thankfully, we found another catfish place that was very, very good. But from that day forward, I never trusted my friend Jimmy to tell me where to eat. The person that you trust with something, you have to know that they're trustworthy first. Before you can ever give your life to God and say, God, would you do something in my life? I want to follow you. I want to understand your plan, what you want for me. Not just in general, but specifically where you want me to go, where you want me to live, who you want me to marry, what my occupation should be. All of these questions that we have about what we're supposed to do in life. But foundationally to that is knowing that we can trust the person giving us the directions. David writes, and in verse 1, he begins by telling you who God is. The first thing I want you to know about why you can trust God and his plan is because of his perception of you, his perception of you, the way that he sees you. And some of you this morning, if you could just see yourself the way that God sees you, everything in your life would change. David writes, and he said, Lord, you have searched me and known me. The word search literally means to examine carefully, to dissect, to dig into. God already knew David. He had already known everything about him. He had carefully examined all parts of his life. And and then he says, you've known me and you've known when I sit down and when I stand up. He says, God, you don't know just who I am, but you know everything that I do. And then this is what he says You understand my thoughts from far away. Showing that God knows even the deepest parts of us, the things that, that we think and we are afraid to ever say it out loud for fear of rejection, for fear of hurt. See, oftentimes we don't want people to know us. Uh, God knows us, says he's searched us, and he knows our thoughts. But we don't want other people to know the real us because we're afraid. We're afraid that that they might reject us, they might hurt us, they might want nothing to do with us. And so many times, even in the church, we we put up a guard and we put on a mask, and we don't open up ourselves to, to people who are trustworthy. Now, I'm not saying just throw your trash all out in the street for anybody that'll listen, but sometimes we're so guarded we don't open up, we don't want to be known. But the Bible says that God knows us even if you don't want to be known says, so you understand my thoughts from far away. The Bible says that our thoughts are powerful. It says this in Proverbs, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The thoughts that we have determine the outcomes of our life. And sometimes we dwell on thoughts that aren't true, and we dwell on them so much, even if they're a lie, we begin to act as if they're true. Perhaps somebody told us that, that we are nobody, Perhaps you had a parent that said you're good for nothing or, or a teacher that said you'll never amount to anything. And you play that over and over in your head, and that thought cripples your life. The good news this morning is that God knows each and every one of your thoughts. And he still loves you. He still accepts you. And this is what he does as well. Look in verse 3. You observe my travels and my rest. All of my road trips, every, everything that I do, every mile that I go on, and when I, I, I'm hanging out and chilling out at home and I'm resting. You're aware of all my ways. Verse 4, Before a word is even on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. First, David said, You know, God, everything that I think. Then he says, God, you know my travels and everything that I do. Now he says, God, you know everything that I say, all my words. The Bible says that one day we will give an account of all of our words before God. This is what Jesus said, Every idle word that men speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. I don't know about you, but, but I've said some words that I regret. I've said some idle words, some words that didn't have value, uh, some words that didn't build people up but tore them down. God knows each one of our words. Look in verse 5. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This word encircled means that, that he has hemmed us in, uh, before us and behind us, all around us, Wherever we go, God is all around us, protecting us and guiding us and leading us. If you know Jesus, you have this protection around you. He's hemmed you in. It's an army term where he's surrounded you. But He surrounded you for good and not for harm. He also has gone before you in your tomorrows, and he's gone behind you in your yesterdays. All the guilt and shame that you have in the things that you've done in the past, he, he can forgive you and cleanse you by the blood of Jesus and redeem you all the things that are going to happen in the future, guess what? He's already there. Billy Graham's daughter, Ruth Graham, wrote a book. It's simply titled this, Fear Not Tomorrow, God Is Already There. Isn't that wonderful? That the, the troubles and the situations and all the things that we'll face tomorrow, God's already gone ahead of us, and he's got it. So this, this, this whole first part, teaches us that God is all-knowing. The big word is omniscience, that he knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. But then David shifts, and then he talks about God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere. Second reason I I want you to know you can trust God in his plan is because of his presence in your life, his presence. Look in verse 6. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David knew God, and he wasn't trying to run away from God. I believe that he was just rhetorically saying that it would be impossible, God, that even if I wanted to get away from you, there's no way that I could escape your presence. And David says, I know that you're there wherever I go. I can't go anywhere to escape your spirit. I can't flee anywhere from your presence. Look in verse 8. If I go up to heaven, you're there the highest heaven, and if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is is the place of the dead, the grave. So even if we go to the highest heaven, he's there. Even if we face the moment of death itself, even there he is. He is everywhere, wherever we go. But not only is he there, present, wherever we go, he's there, whatever we do, whatever we do. Look in verse 9. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits... Even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. I want to give you a couple other translations because it just brings more beauty. Uh, The eastern horizon, some translations you could translate it as the wings of the dawn. Uh, Some say uh, the the western horizon uh, version would say the uttermost part of the sea. Even if I go and harness the speed of light, 186 miles a second, and go as far as the eastern horizon, even then, God, you're there. And if I go to the depths of the sea, down where nobody can see me or reach me, God, even then, you are there. The sun rises in the east. It sets in the west. From sun up to sundown, wherever we go, he's there. Polar opposites, east and west, he's there in all of them. Not only is he there wherever we go, but he's there, whenever we try to hide. I think about Jonah, who, who tried to run from God's plan for his life. He decided that he was not going to obey God and go to Nineveh, and he was going to go his own way. And guess what? God got his attention. God uh, knew where he was even when he tried to hide. Look in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not, not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. The Bible says that one day everything that is done in darkness and secret will be made to the light. We often hide because we sin. That, that goes back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they made a covering on their own and tried to hide from God. You and I do things, and I've seen even people in the church that, that they sin and they feel so far from God, and they try to run and you never see them at church. You see them out in the community, they won't look you in the eye because they're running from God. They're trying to hide from Him. But no matter where you go, you cannot hide from God. You may think that that he's not there, but he's there. You might think that he's not watching, but he is. He sees everything that we do, good or bad, in secret. The, The good things we do in secret, God says he'll reward us openly. The evil and the sin we do in secret, God will one day lay it bare and judge it right. Amen? And so if you don't know Jesus up until this point, all of these verses are probably terrifying to you. That there is a God that knows everything about you, everything you've thought, everything you've done, everything you've said, everywhere you go. I feel like God is like a stalker, okay? But, but, but for the enemy of God, the one who has rebelled against him and sinned against him, nothing can protect you from God's judgment. If you are an enemy of God, there is not one thing in the world that will keep you from one day facing the judgment of God. But if you are a child of God... Not one thing will ever be able to separate you from his love. For for the one that's far from God, all these things about God, his omniscience and his omnipresence, and we'll see his omnipotence, his power, all these things should, should terrify us because we're on our own. But if you know God, this should not terrify you. It should be a comfort to you that God has forgiven your sin and that he knows you and that he loves you. And by the blood of Jesus, he accepts you. And wherever you go, he's with you. And one day, all the things that you've said and done wrong will be covered by the blood. That's a great comfort. So I don't know how you're feeling this morning, but the way you're feeling might indicate the condition of your soul. The Bible says in Romans 8 that I am persuaded neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created. And all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not one thing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God. Next, I want you to see his preparation for you. His preparation for you. Look in verse 13. David talks about his creator and he says, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Uh, This knit gives an image of embroidery. You may have had a great-grandmother that that sewed a a beautiful quilt all together, different patches, different stories, different memories, and the beautiful quilt comes together in all its splendor. It's much better than a store-bought quilt or a blanket. God has knit you together. He's embroidered you. He has created you, and you are not an accident. You are not a reject. You are not a nobody. You have been created by this God, Fearfully and wonderfully, he, he formed your inward parts. It wasn't evolution. It wasn't just a biological chance. He created all the systems of life that came together with your father and your mother to make you, you. You know how astounding DNA is? I looked it up. Your body has 100 trillion cells. Can you imagine? Just in your body, 100? trillion cells. And each one of those 100 trillion cells has 3.16 billion base pairs of DNA in each cell. 100 trillion cells, 3.16 billion pieces of DNA in that cell. Think about the DNA. That's your unique genetic code that you get from your father and your mother. In the womb, when the father's, you know what, meets the mother's, you know what, there's an individual life. Uh, there there is a unique life at the moment of conception this dna belongs to you and you alone it's been given to you by the creator think about it like this if you had a shoestring on the stage and i was holding one up and we just took one in and held it still and took the other and twisted it we would keep getting coils and coils and coils anybody got a garden hose like that you just can't straighten out that's how the dna in your cells is compacted over and over and over and over and over that's how 3 billion Base pairs fit into that one little tiny cell. In fact, these base pairs fit into a space that is just six microns apart. Yet, if you were to stretch it all out, 3.16 billion in your 100 trillion cells, it would be about six feet long in each cell. If you were to take that and stretch all of the cells and all the DNA in those cells out, it would be the length of the solar system, not once, but about twice. God has knitted you together. He knows each one of those hundred trillion cells. And the fool said in his heart, there is no God. And so you're not a mistake. David said, God, you're the one that made me. And then in verse 14, he moves to praise. He says, I'm going to praise you because I have been fearfully and wonderfully, remarkably and wondrously made. God God has made me with a purpose. He, He didn't just put me together for no reason. He created me to know him and to love him and to serve him. So do you see yourself as God sees you? The word remarkable means striking or worthy of attention. I don't know about you guys, but when my wife walked down the aisle on my wedding day, she was quite remarkable. She wasn't just average, wasn't just a plain Jane day. She didn't just have her hair up in a messy bun and wearing just just working outside clothes. She was remarkable. God has created you, and you're not just average. You're remarkable. You've been created on purpose. He's formed you. He's knit you together. Look in verse 15. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. This language is hearkening back to Adam, who was created from dust, and we came from Adam. And because Adam sinned, we know that we've sinned, and we're born into sin. But verse 16 gives us a beautiful picture as well. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. Even before your mother knew that she was pregnant, God knew you. you had, it's impossible, let me just say this, it's impossible to, to, to pinpoint a moment in time where the fetus and the mother becomes a person. You know why? Because there is no moment in time when the fetus becomes a person. It's already a person. God has created you even before your mother knew you were pregnant. At the very moment of conception, God created you. There was a unique life, and the cells started multiplying, and it's astounding. And the growth and all the wonderful things that he did in the secret, it's amazing. He knit you together. So I want you to know that this morning, that he has prepared you. I also want you to see his passion for you. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. He already knew it all, and it says this, God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How precious are the thoughts of God to the person that loves God, to the person that knows God, to the person that is secure in their identity in Jesus Christ. How precious the thoughts of God are. The New Living Translation translated it like this, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. Now, this verse isn't saying that, that God's attention is, is all about me, and I'm the center of the universe because I'm God's favorite. Anybody ever had a sibling that said, I'm the favorite? Well, you're not the favorite, okay? God loves you individually, and he knows you individually, and he loves you individually. But, but, but God, uh, he, he's thinking about you, but it's for his glory. It's to show how wonderful that He is. That who can comprehend the mind of God that would know all of this simultaneously, uh, eternally, without time? He knew everything about you. His thoughts are endless about you. And they're good thoughts. They're thoughts of love, thoughts of acceptance. Somebody once asked Bill Gaither this question. What are the greatest lyrics, the song lyrics, ever written except for the book of Psalms? Because those are some of the most beautiful words are in the Psalms. Without even batting an eye, Bill Gaither said this, these lyrics. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is endless for you. He has a passionate love for you. He wants you to know him. He loved you so much that he sent his very best to ransom your soul from sin. And so in response to this, David shifts in verse 19. There's a whole tone shift. God, if you'd only kill the wicked. Uh, David just seems to be calling down fire and brimstone. It's very important to know that, that David is not talking about sinners because David was a sinner. You can read Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. He said, God, wash me, make me white as as snow, created me a clean heart, a pure heart. There's no good. No, not one. But these people that David's talking about are are not only enemies of God, but those who are openly and defiantly rejecting God. Not not to say that there isn't hope for people to turn back to God, but but David says, I want to be so on track with how holy God is and how loving and how wonderful that he is, that I don't want to associate with people that are going to get me into evil and wicked ways. I I don't want to go away of the world and forget the God who loves me and knows me and has gone ahead of me. This doesn't mean that we don't have uh, acquaintances and people we're trying to show Jesus to, but we don't hang out with the crowd that's rejecting and defiantly opposing God. There's a lot of people doing that today. And we don't need to just get in our holy huddle. We need to go out and love them. But our friends need to be those that are following Jesus, that will help us follow Jesus. And so David, in response to all this who God is, his passion, his preparation, his presence, his perception, he says, I want to separate from the people that do evil things. And God, I want you to do a heart surgery on me. I want you to get rid of the evil that is within my own heart. And I want to follow your way for my life. That's the last reason I want you to see today, that you can trust God's plan for your life because of his purpose for you. Remember at the beginning, David said, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Look in verse 23 at the end. He says the same thing in his prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. He invites God to look on what God already knows. God, would you look at at my heart? Would you know my heart? He invited God into his heart. If you invite God in, here's what happens. David said, test me and know my concerns. The New King James says, try me and know my anxieties. All the worries and cares of my heart. I want to pray like David. God, would you not only know my heart, but but search me and try me and sift through all the the things that I think about and the, the worries that I have and all of my cares. And he says, God, I want to know you and I want to line up my heart with your truth. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And then he says, see if there is any wicked way in me, any troublesome or offensive or evil way. God, if there's anything in my life that is not pleasing to you, would you not only search it out, but would you take it out? David says, I want you to take that out. And here's what I want you to do, God. After you've done all that, I want you to lead me in the everlasting way. God, I want you to show your purpose and your plan for my life. After you've come into my heart, and after you've uh, searched my heart, and and you've sifted through my sin, and you've forgiven me, not only that, now I want to live for you. That sounds a lot like salvation, does it not? Jesus had not come onto the scene yet, but that is a picture of what God does when we ask Jesus to come into our lives. We invite God into our heart, not just our emotions, but the heart in Hebrew is every part. Uh, From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, you say, God, I want you to come in, And not only that, I want you to search me and know me, and I want you to take out the sin in me, and I want you to lead me in your way. That's what salvation is. We say, Lord, would you come into my life by the blood of Jesus? Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? And not only do I want you to be my Savior, I want you to be my Lord so that I follow you all the days of my life. The beauty of this passage this morning is that there is a God who loves you just where you are. But there is also a God that loves you too much to leave you just where you are. There's a God that knows everything about you. He still loves you. He still cares about you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to to give you his comfort in all your anxiety and worry and depression and fear. He wants to go ahead of you and show you his good plan for your life. So I'd ask you simply this this morning. Do you know the God who knows you? Thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. We hope you'll tune back in next time to the Light for Living podcast.